Hi, welcome to Colonial Williamsburg, past and present, on History.org. This is Behind the Scenes, where you meet the people who work here. That's my job. I'm Lloyd Dobbins, and mostly I ask questions. The power of antiques is their ability to connect us with the daily lives of people who lived hundreds of years ago. Restoring and conserving history is the business of conservators at the museums of Colonial Williamsburg. This Thursday's electronic field trip, Treasure Keepers, explores the methods and philosophies that guide the practice. An object from the past is, is the product of, of hands and of tools. And it's very interesting the extent to which all of those uh, tools and methods of construction uh, are imprinted on the historical surfaces. John Watson, a conservator of instruments, is here to tell us more. The business of conservation has changed. You don't do what you used to do. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Conservation has really developed from uh, traditional restoration that goes back, um, I think the Sphinx was first restored uh, during the time of the pharaohs. Oh. Uh, so that long tradition of repairing what's important to us from the past goes back all the way. What's changed in the last um, 50 years dramatically has been the way we approach restoration. Before it was a matter of just replacing parts as needed to get things looking good again, uh, refinishing old furniture, that sort of thing. But because we've come to see antiques as being uh, documents from the past, full of evidence, physical, material evidence of the past, we've learned that traditional restoration tends to erase a lot of that evidence. And so we approach restoration in a very different way, and it's probably more appropriately called restorative conservation now. Is your object to make it look like it did in 1775, or is it to make it, uh, to learn from it of, of how things were made and put together in 1775? Well, that's a terrific uh, example, and, and certainly we as a museum, as we look at antiques, we think of them as primary documents, as uh, evidence of the past. So, yeah, learning from it is the number one thing. Now, to the extent that we can improve its appearance, if it has distracting uh, scars and damage uh, so that the public, when they come and see it, uh, don't really see the object, they see the scars, mm -hmm. we might do something to reduce the, the uh, appearance of the scars and make it look uh, a little better. But those signs of age very often are the, are the very characteristics where this record of the past is. So erasing signs of age is not the business that we're in. Here we have an instrument, and people look at it and they see signs of wear, mm -hmm. which is pretty reasonable if you're 250 years old. Uh, which part of it do you try to fancy up so that it looks like it did in 1775? And which part of it do you want to leave as is so people will see that, it? yes, it was used, and yes, it was used like this? And this is the where it shows from that. That brings up an interesting aspect of all of this, and, and that is 
we have to make judgments about the preservation worthiness of a thing. Uh, sometimes it's perfectly fine to refinish and to replace parts, whatever's needed to make a thing function well or look good. Other times, an object on the other extreme might be so historically significant and rare that to do anything at all would be to threaten some of that physical evidence and to give it the maximum kind of preservation we might do nothing at all and leave it, un in a case of a musical instrument, unplayable. Uh, so there's that judgment that has to be made with every object that comes to us. How do you make that? <laughs> well, we look at a lot of things. We look at the uh, how rare the thing is. We consider how important the original maker was. Um, if, uh, if here in Williamsburg, for example, we know that uh, the, the Bucktrout workshop um, advertised that it made spinets at one time. Well, no such spinet has ever turned up. And if one ever did, it would be one of those things that, that we would never want to probably make any restorative changes to. We'd want to leave it untouched in, in, with all of its original evidence intact. That would be an example of, of uh, that type of judgment. Okay, now we've got Somebody talked once about pocket violins. They said Thomas Jefferson had one and played it. Right. In that case, would you do more restoring or conserving? Well, uh, there's rare and there's rare. Uh, a pocket violin uh, called in the period a kit in England, uh, in America, because it fit in a pocket, um, was perhaps common in the period but very few have survived. It, they, so they're actually quite rare. We have in our whole collection, we have just one. Uh, and it's, uh, we, we don't, well, it actually was restored before it came into the collection, so it is playable. But uh, here's a case where, although it's playable, it's very rare, it's the museum's job, one of the museum's job, to preserve things for the long term. So if, if we're gonna err on one side or other, as a museum, we may err on the side of preserving long-term. And therefore, the instrument is playable, but we allow it to be played very little. Uh, other than limiting its, its use, what are the preservation methods that you would use to keep this as is? One way that we preserve things uh, is to just reduce the, um, the wear and tear from the environment. Changes of humidity, uh, extremes of temperature, exposure to uh, bugs uh, that might eat the wood and, and uh, cause damage of that sort. All of these environmental conditions uh, cause things to age. And we can control those conditions to some extent and, and greatly slow that aging process. Plus, as we've already talked about, the wear and tear of use, we can reduce that. Uh, we can uh, be very careful in the way we store things and the way we handle things. But if you're careful in how you store it and how you handle it, do people get to see it? I mean, if they don't, if they don't see it, what's the sense of having it? Well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I've sometimes taken people into uh, our large storage spaces in the museum, and uh, we have to turn on the light, and 
here's all of these magnificent objects in the dark. And one of the visitors sometimes says, what a pity, all these wonderful things in the darkness, uh, languishing in storage. And I've uh, sometimes said, oh no, this is like the Library of Congress reading room. This is full of historical documents that uh, from time to time are visited by uh, the world's uh, great scholars studying them. And they reveal their secrets. And they're in darkness because light, even light, causes fading and, uh, and aging of objects. When we do put things on exhibit, we, depending on the type of material, especially paper objects, uh, textiles, those are shown for relatively short periods because the light does more damage to them. And so we'll, re, re, uh, we'll swap in, uh, rotate the uh, exhibits so that no one object gets too much uh, exposure to light. Okay, here is a, a, a violin. What does it tell you? Uh, what does it say? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. And they truly do speak. Uh, we often have people uh, coming to us with a, a violin that uh, has a sticker on the inside that says Stradivarius. And they're all very excited and they, they, they feel that they're going to be able to retire on what they'll get for selling this instrument. <laughs> so uh, they bring it to us and it begins to speak in a way. And we look at the workmanship and uh, we can gauge what century it was from by the kind of workmanship. Uh, after a certain time, you would expect the workmanship to be more machine-like, uh, as if it was used, uh, machines were used in the manufacture. You can look at wear marks. You can look at, uh, was it actually played, and for how long, by the wear. You can look at that sticker with Stradivarius's name, and was it the kind of printing that was actually done in Stradivarius's time? Uh, you, can, uh, you can look at the types of damage that can only occur over long, long periods of time. And what very often uh, happens is that what the instrument tells us is something like, I'm about 50 years old, and I was made in a factory in Germany, uh, and I'm a student model violin. And um, it may be worth a lot to you because of sentimental value, but it may not be what it pretends to be. It's the Stradivarius model, not a Stradivarius. Well, a heartbreaking discovery, <laughs> I'm sure. Well, we try to be very tactful. Let's say that there, there really is okay. an old violin. What would it tell you? As long as they've been, the surfaces have been left alone and not scraped. Uh, tool marks are very revealing of methods. Sometimes even on the inside of an object, there may be glue runs. Well, what does a glue run tell you? Uh, it tells you which way the object was sitting at the time that part was glued. Well, what if you have one glue run running this way and another glue run running crossways over it? Well, that tells you a couple of things. It tells you that the object was sitting this way when that part was glued on, and it was sitting this way when that part was glued on, and it tells you which part was glued on first. Uh, is just one example, but the closer you look, the more it reveals its entire process of construction, what tools were used, uh, the methods and the order of construction. It's really quite amazing what the object reveals. 
The electronic field trip Treasure Keepers airs March 6, 2008 on history.org slash trips and on local public broadcasting stations. That's Colonial Williamsburg, past and present this time. Let us know what you think about the show. Submit your feedback at www.history.org slash podcast. Check history.org often. We'll post more for you to download and hear.